Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now, your host, Bela Sebraff on The Definitive Rap. Hello, and welcome to The Definitive Rap. I am Bela Sebrow. Thank you to Vin News for hosting our show. It's interesting how people tend to know much about what they're familiar with, and unless something happens that hits the media or a book is written about it, little is known, or perhaps nothing, about the topic. In the U.S., up until the early 1980s, uh, when it was all over the media, as they were being airlifted to Israel, and even today, there are people who do not know that there are Jews in Ethiopia and even practicing Jews. When people ask where they originate from, there are theories that believe that Ethiopian Jews come from Sheva Dan, Dan who was one of the 12 sons of our forefather, Yaakov Avinu. Some believe that they even come from the lost tribe of Dan. We're going to get a clear count today and everything that you wanted to know about Ethiopian Jews will be answered. Joining us is Dr. Marla Brettschneider, professor of political theory with a joint appointment in feminist studies and polit- politics at the University of New Hampshire. She's the author of numerous award-winning books. Dr. Brettschneider has written extensively on the Jewish phenomenon in sub-Saharan Africa. The Hidden Jews of Ethiopia is her most recent work, and she's currently wrapping up her fourth book in the field. Dr. Brett Schneider, welcome to The Definitive Wrap. Hello, Bela. Thank you so much. It's great to see you. My first question is, what motivated you to have such a strong interest in Jewish Africans, namely Ethiopian Jews? I love that you asked that. Thank you. Um, most of my work until about all my work in general, and then um, I only got involved in this, I say only, um, I only got involved in this particular um, area of study about 15 years ago. And um, what I had been doing was what I call Jewish diversity politics and political theory. And mostly, um, uh, mostly sort of U.S. through Europe to Israel, some things. And um, um I'll always mention or say what I might know about Sephardi and Mizrahi communities in the U.S. and abroad, but that wasn't really my area of focus. Um, but when I was so in doing Jewish diversity politics and political theory, it's grounded in the U.S. Um, it was uh, I cover a variety of diversity areas like class and um, gender and um, all sorts of things, but also especially um, uh, issues about racial diversity. And so that in the U.S. would cover often um, Sephardi and Mizrahi Jews, but also people don't know that there are many people don't know that um, they're getting a little better, but not when I started about 30 years ago, um, knowing about um, the incredible rich diversity um, of U.S. Jews in terms of hundreds of thousands of what Americans would call um, people of color. So Jews of color in the United States. And um, so I've been working on that and critic what I call. So many of you or you, Bela, have probably heard of critical race theory. I was doing what was called what I call Jewish critical race theory, because people at the time, very few people were doing it in a Jewish context. Um, and um, anyway, eventually that led me someone who knew me sent me a call 
for papers for the first conference of a new academic association um, about um, African Jewry. And again, they mostly didn't talk about um, this association mostly doesn't works on sub-Saharan Africa because although we don't, we need to know so much more about North Africa, there is of course a lot more scholarship on North Africa. And so anyway, and it said at the time um, <laughs> that it was about sub-Saharan Africa and the, and the African diaspora. And um, at the time I was uh, working on, which I published a bunch of um, articles on and uh, another article will be in another book of mine as a chapter in um, a different book, more on the the, t- the other type of Jewish diversity um, work that I've been doing. And I had been working on Jamaica Kincaid and she's part of the African di- diaspora. She's a, a author and wonderful critical thinker. Anyway, we could talk about her if we want to another time. But so anyway, I went in doing diaspora because I was working on this fantastic person who had was from the was Afro-Caribbean and was living in the United States. And that's when I met and found out about this field and the situation and the phenomenon. And that was my first exposure. And once I once I began to be exposed, um, I was already immediately I didn't I was very new to the field, but trained in political theory, meaning looking at power dynamics in different situations and certainly trained long and doing work in race. Um it was immediately clear from that conference, as fantastic as the conference was, and as grateful to the organizers as I absolutely am, I already was seeing these intense racial dynamics mm. happening um, right away. And I started to just write short pieces or conference papers because because I needed to figure out what, what I could figure out what was going on. I didn't understand it. It was a whole new arena for me. Um Anyway, and that's how I got started. And so I've long been looking sort of critically at the, you know, what would be the my group, the the northern, the global northern scholars and um, people who aren't from the communities themselves. And then uh, I, at some point, I actually started to be able to be in sub-Saharan Africa and visiting with a lot of different communities. And, um, you know, of course, I can have any number of differences with them. And that doesn't really matter what. Right. The thing that's kept me going is trying to hold my group accountable for the power dynamics and um, and just how often moved I am by the people that I meet in the communities on the ground. They um, again, and you can have annoying, obnoxious, terrible people in any community, but I'm, in general, the people that um, I got to meet with in the communities I got to spend a little time with um, were amazing. And they're all they're all on a path. They're all searching and um, there's just what are they searching for? Well, um, they're searching for. Well, a lot of them would would say a lot of the folks on the ground in their terms would say they're searching for um, uh, an understanding of and relationship to and how to live out uh, the will of the one true God is often the way they would say it. And um, the way I see it as just a scholar of broader phenomenon, um, not exclusively um, Judaic studies, like not exclusively religious studies um, amongst Jews. So I also, of course, I honor that the way that they might see them themselves. And um, and that's beautiful what they're doing um, in the way that they describe it. For me, when I what I see them searching for is ways to be in such um, a difficult part of the world. 
um, difficult regions that they're in and um, with histories of slave enforced slavery with the Atlantic slave trade and other kind of slave trades and um, and missionizing and colonizing and you know, it's just amazing to see these people the way I would see them in this broader way, searching for a life with dignity, a way to connect deeply with others, to create community that isn't always imposed from the outside. Right. Um, and that so I was I just continue to be moved. And again, doesn't mean I don't I don't disagree with them or have different views, whatever. But, you know, you know, often that's not the only thing that one cares about. One cares about just seeing beautiful people working on themselves and their communities and global issues. Yeah. Are there Jews currently living in Ethiopia? Yes. Uh, Different estimates because there's no official way to take them to take any demographic statistics, but some would say one to 200,000 still living there. Um, Uh, so as you say, many people know about the, um, the groups of people from Jews from Ethiopia who were brought to Israel in, um, in the early the 1980s, um, airlifts. There were some Ethiopians living in Israel already. Um, and the global northern folks, like from France, had been, um, interacting with Ethi- the Jewish communities in Ethiopia for a long time before that. Um, but it wasn't until this particular, um, terrible time in Ethiopia of a civil war and famine, et cetera, that a group, um, some groups that had formed outside of Ethiopia were able to be involved with some groups, some of the folks in Ethiopia to organize some way to support and help them. And that one major way was, of course, the, the, as a result was the airlifts. And then some people might know then there were some other folks who weren't included in that group that first, you know, decade or so, they weren't considered Jewish or Jewish enough, even though there had been this question as well, much that's as Israel. everywhere. People think not Jewish enough. You know, exactly. I, I don't we know. All seem to don't say even get me started on that topic. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, then there was another group that some people who have been following it a little more know about this other group. And many of those folks over these decades have been accepted. And also um, they've sought to live to live in Israel, Megalia. And so. Um, there's them and there are still some more from that community that um, haven't yet been able to connect and have the recognition that they want. The group that I'm focusing on is connected. They're all, of course, really historically part of one large community that has been broken up over war and um, hatred and famine and uh, especially drought. And there have been migration patterns like in any other part of the world. So they themselves, the folks that I study, consider themselves um, absolutely historically part of the same community that foreigners tend to know about um, in the group mm-hmm. like that went to Israel. But they have longer lived in, um, and the reason that I use the word hidden, which could be really a, uh, you know, could be not a great buzzword, but Folks that I was going to ask you why you use the topic, the hidden Jews. I mean, the title, the hidden Jews. Exactly. Thank you for asking. So the, um, because often they were the ones who, uh, lived more in the mountains and literally in hidden communities in faraway places that are very hard to get to, that are hard to access. Why did they live there and what, why were they hidden? Thank you. Because, um, they call themselves um, also B'nai Israel, and I'm going to refer to them as Jews 
to make it easier, although I'm not sure that's the right thing to do. So um, his historic anti-Jewish hatred, just extreme, extreme, what these people face. And of course, I'm sure we'll talk a lot more about the specifics of what they face. Okay, tell me, what, tell me that, what they face. We, we, we need to know. I will. Um, I just want to say because of this, um, different communities have lived in different ways. And these communities that a lot of the world doesn't know about is because I guess they were better at kind of hiding. And so outsiders have known a lot less about them. I mean, of course, some outsiders have known, but in general, the way that a lot of people know from the media, as you say, about the groups that were airlifted. So they literally do live in relatively in, in spaces that they're hard to see. I mean, I've seen some like video and photographs of um, of roads that are maybe high up or something and that you can't actually see that people are living in communities just because of the, they've somehow chosen over these many, many, whatever, decades, hundreds of years, whatever, um, these spots where they really um, hopefully will be protected by geography from external um, threats. And another thing that they've done, which uh, uh, we can talk about now or after, but also is that, so a lot of them, um, a, a term, a phrase used by some folks that I met, it goes something like this. We're born as Jews. This isn't about everybody, um, but uh, some of them in their middle, active and professional years move into the city like Addis Ababa. And, um, and there they've had to live in hiding as Christians because it was so dangerous. Right. And so for some of those folks, there are people who live in, they're called Gadams, the, the synagogue community areas out in the more rural areas. But some other folks who've lived in the city say that we're, um, that we're born as Jews and we die as Jews, but we live as Christians, meaning they might be born in the communities in the rural areas. They move into the cities where they have to try to pass as Christians for their um, very safety. And then when they retire, they move back to their areas. And it's because of this in hundreds of years, we can't, we can't possibly actually know how many Jews of these communities have been lost to life in the cities and the need to live as Christians. And then when do you tell your children and when do they tell their sure. children, et cetera? So, so many, I can tell you some stories that are just, um, that I even personally got to be part of um, about people who um, didn't even realize it, et cetera. And they had been part of a Christian community that the Jewish community was concerned about, et cetera. So, um, so that's one of the main reasons I think that historically when Jewish folks were um, for the 80s um, airlifts, they didn't consider them Jewish because they met these people who were saying I'm Jewish, but they were clearly living as Christians. Oh. And so they didn't, they sort of, whoever the gatekeepers are of defining who is Jewish kind of cut it off. And the ones that, as we know, even the ones that were accepted as Jewish still, even after that, have faced a really tough time with people challenging their Jewishness, et cetera. But these folks must have gone beyond whoever those gatekeepers were, some line, and um, didn't didn't know enough yet about the these phenomenon, about how many actually could demonstrate and show you a rich communal life that they were also a part of at the same time. Mm and that their histories and their hearts and um, other things, of course, were still Jewish and they were just living this way. And it's interesting for that because, 
you know, in contemporary times, we're more aware of other groups of conversos, like false converts, right. starting from whether it's the um, expulsion of the Jews um, from the Spanish Inquisition. We're finding out more of folks like this living in Arab Muslim lands. We yes. are finding more about Jews living all across Europe, whose parents um, from the history of Jewish hatred there, and then the pogroms, then the yeah. Holocaust, like Madeleine Albright, you know, yeah. Secretary yeah. of State of the United States, finds out as an adult that her Unbelievable. family and her parents tried to shield her and wanted and wanted professional careers that they wouldn't have access to. So we find this phenomenon all around the world of people um, that we tend to, that we've tended to call forced conversos. All, of course, all through Latin America. We can, you know, I've done some work, but I focus mostly on Africa. But um, so certain regions where Christianity was prevalent, mostly a little bit in Muslim countries, but where Christianity was prevalent. And so you get um, a lot of folks who move even via the Spanish Inquisition to the Americas. Right. And we're just more and more people are sort of just coming out and connecting to known Jewish communities, even throughout the Americas, because. They were Portuguese or Spanish, and um, sometimes they'd uh, the Inquisition would uh, the Inquisition was only outlawed in the Americas or in Mexico at least in like the 1800s. So for hundreds of years, the communities would go through this process of things seemed a little okay, and they lived more openly as Jews. Many of them also moved out into rural areas, and then the, there would be some new leader in Spain or Portugal and would say, you know, give some sort of edict that they had to come down stronger about the Inquisition, and then. Those folks had to go more into hiding and again live um, more publicly as Christians. Anyway, so that's a similar situation for what was happening with the Ethiopians. And just thinking about the racial politics, why does it, why, I don't have an answer exactly, but the racial politics, you know, asks us to ask what's different about folks in sub Saharan Africa right. when we know about this dynamic almost all over the world. So, Nowadays, what is life like for them? Are they still living in, in, in hidden mountains and they have their own schools and hospitals? Like, what, what was, yeah, what's a typical day have, in the life have, of an Ethiopian family? Thank you. They wouldn't have a lot of contemporary, um, institutions like a whole hospital. Like it's, they're not that extensive. They're generally smaller communities that live in very rural spaces, don't have a lot of even, um, what we would consider like tech access and, um, who would have internet access, et cetera. So um, right. they rely on some of that information for when they go back and forth to the city or the city, oh. the city dwellers come back and forth. So, um, so again, we'll, we'll go back to that other point um, in order to get at the, this great question, what's, what's life like? What does it look like for folks these days in these communities is we do have to understand this intense history and current situation of what I would call Jew hatred. Again, they they identify as Jews, but they have a name for themselves, right? So I just want to be careful about placing uh, yeah. the term Jewish when they also have a name that they name themselves. So um, it's been so incredibly intense and still absolutely current that there are these ideologies um, about Jews and they're seen to be kind of almost mythical creatures with superhuman um, it's all it's all very much related to ancient Christian blood libel sort of stuff um, because Ethiopia became Christian uh, a very long time ago and has to some degree interacted with um, the rest of the Christian world. And so um, 
there's one an ideology that sees Jews as um their uh the local there's a local name for them which means um the name is Buddha which means like they have the evil eye hmm. and um it's understood that they turn into hyenas at night and um they ransack Christian areas or other you know non-Jewish areas they might wow. you know it's uh, it's uh, the idea is that they still steal and kill and um and so what the Jews live with is often for example if uh you know some tragedy befalls a child in a Christian area they will blame it on the Jews and say oh, still they, today still today if there's a drought or something happens with the crops they will still blame it on these Jewish communities because this ideology remains you know many people can work beyond it as there has sure. always been with terrible ideologies but it's still so prevalent that even in the cities um many people if they know that they're part of this community they won't touch them they're not allowed to touch their skin um often the Jews in the cities involved in uh, merchant business or trading have to sell to some middle person who then of course pays the Jews very little hikes up the price because a lot of the people in the communities are craftspeople and historically craftspeople are seen in many of the regions in Ethiopia are seen somehow as as um I don't know, there's a relationship to people who work in the crafts and people who are seen to be Buddha. So the people in the city still, that's partly why they try not to be known. But if they are known already as Jews or from the communities, they can't even interact with Christians. Wow. Christians won't eat with them. They won't eat food that they make. They won't touch their skin. They won't buy directly from them. So there's this construction of this right. middleman situation. Right. And then out in the, um, in the communities that are in the rural areas, they still face, um, you know, as retribution, they could still face murder, ransacking their homes and communities, burning their fields. This is still today. Yeah. Or any number of acts of discrimination when, of course, by now, Ethiopia has a modern, you know, constitution and Mm -hmm. basically, you know, to some degree, contemporary laws that match many other countries but as we all know this stuff often this stuff can be supported by the law or it can be supported by people associated with the government even if the laws no longer say that and then ordinary people and so what the folks in the rural areas are still facing if they need to go to a local government official to ask for some sort of papers or to do anything so they'll also still face it in the christian communities by christian clergy and also just government officials that are in charge of those regions face tremendous discrimination and often very violent retribution. Wow. So um, how did it come to be that Ethiopian Jews started making Aliyah? Um, that's a great question. Um, in the phenomenon across the whole region of sub-Saharan Africa, as I understand it, um, some people, okay, so what people have historically known about until more recently with um, computers and um, mass media, um, is they knew biblical understandings, right, of is the, the ancient land of Israel. And so many of them are very aware of Israel, even if they didn't yet know that it was a, I mean, I've still met some older folks in the community, not much older than me, but 
who grew up not knowing that Israel was a contemporary country with people who looked like them and all sorts of people and had buses and whatever. So they, you know, the only image that they really had before mass media really began around the 1980s or in the last 20 years um, is they still imagined there was kind of like a biblical land of Israel. And as, um, as so many Jews around the world have paid, had Israel has played this enormous part in their um, Jewish lives and religiously. And so what we get, the vast majority of folks um, would love to be able to visit Israel, like on a kind of pilgrimage, or they'd love to be able to study there. And um, it's not necessarily that they're seeking to live in Israel for the rest of their lives. They all want a closer relation. They want to be acknowledged as Jews, want a closer relationship with Israel, and at least the majority want to come and have a very dynamic personal relationship with Israel. And then there are some who are expressly Zionist and want to come and um, move to Israel. And um, I'm not in the first groups that actually um, did come to Israel. You'd have to really look at the combination of, was that what the Jewish foreigner, you know, the relationship between these aspirations or these um historical understandings of the Jews on the ground in Ethiopia about Israel and that we were in a historical moment where the main way that we have to take care of a group that we identify as Jews is to bring them to Israel, right? And so it's unclear if, um, I wouldn't say that they're not Zionists because I want to stress that Israel is very important to them, but they might not have all understood as clearly Uh that that contemporary Aliyah was the kind right. of option that a lot of the rest of us understand. And right. so it's, it's possibly through the relationships with foreigners. And I don't say that in this way as a bad no. thing, but mm-hmm. as interaction began to grow more in the late um, 20th century, and then this terrible famine and civil war. And it was just, of course, like anything, it was tremendously impacting basically everyone horribly in Ethiopia. And then, as you know, marginalized groups, of course, always tend to bear the brunt even worse. And so these Jewish communities were um, even uh, way worse off than other Ethiopians who, of course, were still suffering with the famine. Right, and the civil right. um, I have a question. Might be a fun fact. Uh, we'll <laughs> see if I can answer. I don't know everything. So. <laughs> but maybe you might know this. That, um, is it true that there are Ethiopians who believe that they are the direct descendants from King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba? Absolutely. And again, it's a whole mix. But most the the um, for the most part, the origin story like all of our communities have origin stories. How did my people get to Ashkenaz, you know, <laughs> and how did they get from Ashkenaz to the United States? But so we all have origin stories. And um, yes, it is a common understanding that they are descendants from ancient Israelites. And we all know, I want to also uh, one um, affirm what you said about the biblical story, and then I'll also complicate it a little bit. Many do understand that they are the production, the product of the relationship between Queen of Sheba and the visit that we know from the Bible, um, um, and the king in Israel. And, um, and there are stories about that the Queen of, uh, Sheba went home pregnant and had a son, at least one son named Menelik, and he went back 
to visit. He wanted at some point to visit his father. He and his mother decided and he went to Jerusalem and whatever. And that someone in his entourage carried off the tabernacle. And so um, if you see, there are endless, they're mostly created um, by and for Christians, but there are an endless by now um, amount of documentaries on that Ethiopia is the, has, is the home, has the, has the ancient Israelite tabernacle. Again, because this is a little more, this would be a little more common because even though Muslims accept Christianity as one of their forebears, Ethiopia is still um, a Christian nation. So for the most part, there are plenty of Muslims, et cetera, but uh, unlike many other countries in the region. So, um, and it has this in, incredible ancient history uh, to their Christianity. So, so many do understand one option, like you said, is that they're the products of this and, um, and that the Christians have, many Christians in Ethiopia have internalized that they really are the true descendants also as the Christians and that they have the tabernacle and it's hidden away in these spaces. And some of the Jewish communities say, we have the tabernacle, it's hidden in these spaces. And that's also <laughs> one of the potential um, trouble spots between some Christians and the Jewish communities. Like who are these people that, you know, um, know they're lying kind of thing in a theological way. And as you said, some people uh, understand, understand um, with the dispersion of the Jews that, um, that they are the um, descendants of the tribe um, that uh, you said. And, um, and that's very common across the region. So many people, broaden it out to just that their that their origin story is um queen of sheba and um the king of israel um so some consider themselves one of those tribes because no one that at least i know of in western jewry has been able to locate these (laughs) where these tribes went to and so lots of people have an understanding um and um i will say that um I think what's very exciting for me about studying this as an area of scholarship and that I love to share with Jewish communities with whom I speak and I love to be brought. It's great to do this podcast and I like in person as well. And so I love to be brought to little local communities, synagogues, et cetera, around um, to to talk about this. But um, it's also just amazing if I hadn't prepared for us, but if you look at a map, we know that the diaspora of the ancient world far, far preceded the official diasporas of the sacking of the temple and then sending most of the Jews from ancient Israel mm-hmm. into the diaspora. There were long diasporas, even when there was uh, ancient Jewish Israelite kingdoms. And um, we have plenty of um, yeah. you know, historical and archaeological evidence of this. And so we actually, we do know, but we sort of forget because we tend to say diaspora in connection with being sent into exile when the temple was sacked. So, but we do know of lots more of that diasporas were existing, relatively vibrant, thriving communities before the official diasporas, during, after, etc. And we know about uh, Jews or ancient Israelites uh, working on trade routes all across the region and certainly across um, Northern Africa, we, again, lots of, you know, this in terms of scholarship, or if you pay more attention, perhaps sometimes to our, to the Devar Torah, someone may bring in some of this contemporary right. understanding on a Saturday morning, Shabbat morning. So um, what a lot of people don't then think about is, you know, what might have happened really to these and the way that Africa is right there 
Um, a lot of African Jewish communities consider Israel. So when people who've been influenced by Northern white Christian sort of racism, they say, how could Jews be in Africa? Right? Like it's considered such an other kind of place. And it's understandable if they move through North Africa or the Middle East or they got to, um, to Europe, but they ask this question as if it's such a long shot and so foreign. And it's incredible for me to share with you that a lot of the folks in these communities on the ground consider Israel part of Northern Africa. Right. So there's not even a question for them. How did I get to Africa? Right. Right. Because if they understand themselves, if their origin story is ancient Israel, they've already always they're, been they're there. Yeah. In Africa. Exactly. And if you look at what we do know about trade routes and sailing across the Red Sea and the move to Yemen and lots of folks moved into Ethiopia, we know from Yemen. And then they, you know, many people just continued uh, in various migrations over time. I mean, we're talking about relatively ancient communities. So again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that the claim that the contemporary folks involved in these communities are direct descendants. I don't need to have a perspective on that. The point is that they themselves understand this as where they come from. And when you take a look and try and get outside a little bit of the frameworks of like global Northern white Christian racism, which Jews, you know, as much as we've been out the outsider um, because of Christian European racism, at the same time, of course, there are ways that we don't even realize we've kind of taken up some of those ideologies to the fact that we would say, Africa, that doesn't make sense to me because we don't, you know, in the construction of white Christian racism doesn't see the sub-Saharan part of Africa as a real um, genuine place. But if you take a look at it and you try and stand aside for a moment and get out of our historical racisms and just all the ways that we tend to other other people, um, it's really not. It, it makes perfect sense. And you can see it on the map and you can hear it in the stories and you can hear it in the stories that are new to established Northern Jewish communities, but um, correspond with a lot of other things that we know that were already affirmed and known. For example, like the Yemen, you know, that Jews right. lived all across the Middle East and certainly down to Yemen has a very ancient history. And we know that it was going from Yemen across into what we today would call Africa and into Ethiopia and the Sudan, et cetera. You know, a lot of the tidbits don't have to line up with what the global North sees as ancient Jewish history, but it actually often does. And just no one has thought to pay attention. One last question. Um, our listeners and viewers will be directed to how they can get a hold of your book. But what is the main takeaway you would like for people to glean from the hidden Jews of Ethiopia? Um, thank you. I might have to say more than one, but I'll give it a try. I guess, um, from their perspective today, the book itself is, a um, the book itself is a product of a new movement among these communities, um, of some people thinking that it's a little safer now and they know about international human rights. And so they think, um, they're hoping that maybe they'll be more protected when um, terrible things happen. And so they really, um, amongst wanting to just, you know, end the terrible um, Jewish hatred that they face, 
They're also really seeking, many are seeking relationships with global Jewry, in addition to your question about Israel, just the rest of Jewry in general. Um, so for them, um, I think that doing this podcast was really outstanding. Another, just that they exist and you may want to know more about it and how to approach that with some cultural sensitivity of still being everything of who you are, but also being open to the way they speak about themselves. And then also really knowing that we know about anti-Semitism today and historically in so many places and the anti-Jewish hatred that they face today and historically has been so extreme and is still so violent. And um, I really just wish more people and more Jews knew about that situation because it's still a really dire situation. And thanks to you, they will. How can people purchase the Hidden Jews of Ethiopia? Thanks so much. Um, You can go directly. Um, It's probably on some forums on the web that you can buy it. You can go directly to the press, um, which is Melon Press. And also I want to just uh, extend because Bela, for everyone um, um, who participates in the podcast, Bela has been so wonderful. And so I want to make sure that you know that um, I get a discount as an author. And the book um, is published by a very um, academic style. There are different kinds of academic presses. And so it's priced. It, there is a, a soft cover but it's still priced far higher than an ordinary person would pick up a book. And so, of course, I extend to you all, I will actually um, invite anyone to be in contact with me so I can make sure that they get a And how can they get to be in contact with you? Yes. Um, so uh, uh, my email would be Marla B, M-A-R-L-A-B, for Marla Brett Schneider, Marla B at UNH. I'm at the University of New Hampshire dot edu. And for as long as I can tell, you will still always be able to find me if you look me up at, at the University of New Hampshire. And there is, like Bela found out, there is a um, a Facebook page, which I'm not <laughs> very good at Facebook. And so I apologize in advance. And I'm so thrilled that Bela figured it out. Um, but there is a, uh, um, it's not super active because, again, I'm just so terrible at it. But there is a Facebook page for um, the book. And um, I would love to see people exchanging ideas and sharing and you can always reach out to me for there and I would hopefully be able to get you soft cover copies and with the discount I'm happy to even do that personally for you folks because Bela is fantastic Dr. Brett, uh, Brett Schneider thank you so much for joining us today I look forward to your future publications and I invite you I personally invite you back to the show to talk about uh, your future books thank good you. luck to you thank you again thank you so thank much you. Thank you to our audience for tuning in. And thank you to the news. Thank you also. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Wrap with your host, Bela Seabrow. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can catch The Definitive Wrap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Wrap.